My name is Nathaniel. I'm this, one of the site leaders at our Mosley site. Um, and this is Matt Morgan. Thank you for joining me here, Matt. Um, some of you might know Matt. I know some of you do. Some of you might have seen him uh, perhaps playing the drums in our worship bands really brilliantly. Um, and Matt has been a part of our Riverside family for quite a number of years now. Um, and uh, you are a, an assistant head in, in a school. You are married to Andrea, who's here as well this morning. You've got three daughters. Um, and a relevant topic at the moment is mental health. And all of us will go through phases of having good mental health and poor mental health in the same way that we would have good physical health and not so good physical health as well. And um, in a moment, Matt, you're going to be sharing with us a time in your life when you, your mental health was not in a good place um, and you were actually at a breaking point. Uh, but before we get to that, could you just share with us a little bit about your upbringing and also what happened when you became a Christian? Sure. Uh, just to say, it's really nice to be here. Um, it is lovely to be here. I, um, I uh, was brought up in a rural village uh, in Wiltshire. Uh, grew up plucking turkeys at Christmas and hay baling during the summer. And so quite a different experience to being here. Uh, I wasn't born, um, brought up in a Christian family per se, but my parents have very loving family uh, background. My mum was, had a real interest in spirituality and uh, there was all sorts of various Buddhas and things around the house. Um, and I suppose uh, I, I went to an Anglican primary school in the village, and I suppose I always had big questions about Christianity, big questions about God, and uh, the big questions of life, I suppose. And uh, that carried on throughout my, my upbringing, I suppose. Uh, zooming forward to university, really, I um, managed to be able to investigate a lot of those things, looking into all the ologies, the sociology and psychology and uh, philosophy and politics and... I suppose the big question in my mind was, uh, what's the answer to the problems of life? Um, I studied something called sport and recreation studies or fruit and veg, as other people in the college kindly called it. Uh, we looked at things like hooliganism and uh, what, why do people, why are people hooligans and what's the answers and, and so on. And I didn't find any answers in all the ologies and in all the different teachings. And so I looked a lot deeper into Christianity and to cut a long story short, I went to a, an Eden Pentecostal church. I lived with a Roman Catholic for three years, and he had something very special about himself and the way he saw life. But then I was invited to an Eden Pentecostal church, and there were a couple of girls who I'd been coaching basketball who'd become Christians. And I spent about nine months investigating Christianity, uh, going to this church every Sunday, found it fascinating. The talks were really interesting. And then what I can only experience, uh, explain is a kind of um, a veil coming off my face, uh, uh, coming away was how I explained. I don't make decisions easily, as you're about to find out. Making decisions for me is a really hard thing, and uh, particularly when you suffer with anxiety. Um, I don't make decisions easily, and the decision to become a Christian was one that I was not going to take, very simply. And uh, I wasn't going to give my life to anything unless I thought it was the truth. But this experience of a veil coming away was quite incredible. It would only have taken something like that for me to become a Christian. And I was so excited. I was so excited that at last I'd found the answer, I felt, to the problems in the world. And I suppose to sum it up, what I felt at the time was to say, the way you change the world is one person at a time. And uh, that's how God did it for me. And so uh, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And OK, so that sounds brilliant. Changing the world one person at a time. How, how did you then go about doing that? Or how did you think you were going to go about doing that? Right. So, yeah, uh, I'd got a job as a, 
a mother's help, can you believe, uh, somehow, before they even had DBS checks in those days, this mother decided to employ me. Must have been my smile, I suppose. And uh, she, uh, uh, I was taken on, and there was a family that was broken. Uh, parents had just split up, and I looked after the kids until mum came home after primary school. But seeing this family broken, I'd already considered being a teacher, and uh, but... I decided to throw myself back into teaching when I saw that that was a great place to express my faith. And so I went off, came to Birmingham and trained to be a, a secondary school teacher, uh, which was great. It was a, a great uh, avenue to express my faith. I, was, I, have, I, I am still now in Roman Catholic schools, which is a, a wonderful place to express the Christian faith. And, uh, but then the, the kind of the big uh, ideas part of me can't kick back in and I decided no I need to do something bigger than just be a teacher and uh, you know I, I say that in obviously quite a silly way really but um, I decided I had to go and be a missionary and uh, so I had a, a picture in my head one day of a map with a, the word Sudan written across it and so I decided that was where God was sending me and uh, I don't know, maybe I'd seen a, uh, a map uh, of Sudan some time before. But anyway, I felt led, and it sounds a bit weird. But I started pushing some doors, and I found some doors came open. And I, I went over you get to Uganda and spent four weeks with Sudanese refugees, um, which was an amazing experience, a brilliant experience. Um, I came back from Uganda, and I decided that that's what God wanted me to do. And I was going to... Uh, so I applied for a job in a in a primary school in Khartoum, the capital of uh, Uganda, the capital of Sudan. Sorry. Uh, so I was full of energy for it, but then something strange started to happen. And the closer I got to uh, the uh, to going over there, there was going to be an interview. The um, the head teacher of the, of the primary school, as it was, and I'm in a secondary school PE teacher, right? It's easy to teach primary school, isn't it? But God had it in for me, so that's what I was going to be doing. And uh, so the, uh, pri the primary school head was coming over. But the closer I got to that experience, I started to get extremely anxious. And I started to think, is this, what have you done here? You know, why are you thinking of going to live in Africa? I've always been uh, quite a homely kind of person. I love staying at home. And the idea of going to live my life in Africa I just think, what have you done? Why have you done this? And strangely, the closer it got to the time of the interview, I got more and more anxious, uh, extremely anxious. Uh, so much so that when the head teacher of the primary school phoned up to say she couldn't come over anymore, she had to cancel the interview, I felt an enormous sense of relief. But I had really, unfortunately at that point, really said this was me. This is what I was going to be. I was going to be an, an evangelist. I was going to be a missionary over in Africa. And when it all fell apart, I suppose I felt a sense of, well, what's next? Um, what, what, am I, what am I going to do with my life now? And so there were some anxieties happening amongst that. And um, that wasn't the only thing happening in your life at the time. Could you tell us a little bit more about the other aspects that were adding to this anxiety for you? Sure. So as I said, I brought up in a very close family, a very loving family, but after 28 years of marriage, my parents decided that they were going to split up. I uh, later found out as well that my mum was gay, and uh, that was the main reason, I suppose. Now, I'd always had anxieties about my parents splitting up. I was, I should say, I've always been an ang anxious kind of person. Uh, as a child, you know, I'd worry about all sorts of things, but uh, with my parents splitting up, my parents not being Christians, um, there's a whole thing, I'm sure some of you will relate to this, that 
when you become a Christian, there's like you, you take on a certain identity, you have an identity, and you're really happy about that identity. In a sense, it's just like growing up, I suppose, but you have this identity where you're independent, you know who you are with God. But then your old life, your life that you had before you were a Christian, there's some tensions there. And I know that happens in any kind of relationship with parents. Parents Relationship with parents can be difficult anyway. And your identity there. So I wouldn't for one minute want to blame what was about to happen to me on my parents splitting up. But I think there was obviously them breaking up was part of the questions about who I was and uh, my past and was, was I a city boy, was I a country boy, simplistically putting it. There's all sorts of questions in my head about who I was and uh, what made me tick, yeah. And then, so so you didn't go to Sudan in the end no. and you kind of were back into teaching and yeah. there was a ski trip coming up. And tell That's us a little right. bit about the yeah, build up so to that ski trip. Obviously me and Nathaniel have talked this through. And so I had this ski trip, I was planning on going skiing with uh, the school, the following March, my parents split up in the summer. Sudan happened in the summer. And uh, I'd been to Uganda. I'd been to China. I'd been to America, uh, South Africa. I've been all over the world. But for some strange reason, and it really was incredibly strange, I found myself getting extremely anxious about going on a skiing trip. And the closer it got to that skiing trip, the more and more anxious I got. And uh, it, I later found out it's something called anticipation panic, which I still suffer from today. Um, and the closer you get to something, the more anxious you get. And it really wasn't very nice at all. So much so that it was getting so bad. I, and I just couldn't work it out. Why am I having these fears? Later on, I saw a psychiatrist who said, well, clearly what happened is all your fears about Sudan and stuff were kind of being um, implanted on the skiing trip and your fears about your life and everything else. But at the time, it just didn't make any sense whatsoever. And so, cut long story short, the day before we were due to leave to go to skiing trip, I had to pull out at the very last minute. And uh, this is, of course, my biggest fear that I was going to let people down. And part of my anxiety ever since has been this idea of letting people down. And it can be something that's so easy to do. I mean, I haven't, I haven't experienced it today, but it, on another day, it might be come to speak to you today. If there was a big consequence for me not coming to talk to you today, you know, I know you're the most loving people in the world and you'd forgive me and it wouldn't be a problem and Nathaniel would cope, but I would feel an immense sense of responsibility. And, and that's kind of harks, harks back to this, this ski trip and people losing thousands and thousands of pounds and feeling an immense sense of responsibility. So I pulled out the last minute. The next week, my father came up to see me again, me, my father, my mum, some uh, dynamics going on there. But I was walking between um, the, the car park at the back of Weatherspoons in Mosley and I walked down an alleyway and I, I kicked a stone uh, just as, as you scuff your feet along. And the stone kind of ended up near this big gate near a, a, um, the, the kind of the hinge of this gate. And I was concerned about the gate. I was concerned that the gate would, would not work properly and it would somehow come off its hinges or, or something. So I looked at where the stone had landed and I just kind of dusted off the stone from the gate and to see that it was okay. I walked away, but I then couldn't walk away. I had to come back and check that the gate was still okay. And uh, I walked away again and that, no, that wasn't any good. So I had to come back and check again and make sure the gate was okay. Somehow, I managed to change my attention to the other side of the alleyway 
where there was a small low wall at the back of a shop. And I kind of kicked some stones out of the way and it hit the stones kind of hit this wall. And then I started to get anxious about this low wall that I somehow damaged this wall. And so then the obsession started with this low wall. And uh, a number of times I went back until eventually I had to go into the shop and speak to the shop owner said, I'm really worried I've, he must have thought, what's going on here? But this, uh, this guy's coming in. At one point, he got a little bit annoyed with me, actually. Um, it's all going to be okay. He walked around the back with me to check this, the wall was okay. But, uh, but of course, what was happening is I was falling into the pits of obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, looking back, I had, without realizing, had some episodes before, but I just didn't realize it was called that. And uh, cut a long story short, from then on, I fell into this real pits of OCD. And um, typically you'll think of OCD as people checking taps and checking doors. That was, and things are locked and checking that things are okay. And that's kind of what ran my life for a very long time, yeah. And so kind of when that happened, you then had some time off work yeah. um, and because you weren't able to even kind of go to work and the school was really understanding about brilliant. that, weren't they? Absolutely and, brilliant, yeah. Um, so just when, when that was happening, where was your faith? Where was your faith in all of this? So um, my faith was still there. I still believed God was there. Um, in, the end, in, in essence, I blamed myself for it. I blamed that it was me who was, had the problem. It wasn't God who had the problem. God was still there. God loved me and God, the gospel was still true. Everything about the truth that I'd learned was still there. And so I would be sat on my sofa at home during the six or seven weeks I had off school, uh, not knowing whether to stand or sit down, not knowing whether to walk out the door, turn left or turn right, uh, in complete state of anxiety about any decision I had to make. But God was still there. I'd like to say it made me feel better, but it didn't. Maybe, I suppose, I, I suppose I would believe if, if God wasn't there, it could have been even worse. But um, I would find myself sitting on the sofa and not deciding whether to uh, read my Bible or not. What happens if I read the Bible and I get a bit stressed about something that I read in the Bible? Am I going to be okay? Is it going to, am I going to get more obsessed? And I suppose at that time you realize that when things go really bad, you get a fear of fear. You get a fear that you're going to go back to the place where you were before. And that's when it spirals really badly because you're, you're conscious of every emotion you're going to have and conscious that, oh dear, I've started to get frightened there. Am I going to start spiraling? And it just spirals and spirals. And so this was quite a paralyzing time for you. Yeah. Um, you weren't able to do a lot of things. Did you go and receive any medical help? What, what did you then do from that point onwards? Sure. So I was I lived the other side of the Edgebaston Reservoir uh, on Gillette Road, uh, which is an interesting road if you, especially in those days, if you know about it. And um, went to church over there. But I went to the Caris Medical Center because it was the closest church. And I fell into the hands of the most wonderful GP called Paul Turner, who many of you probably will know. And he very gently and very sensitively took me on and helped me to consider all the options. And that's how he put it. So when he first put across the idea that I might think about going on medication, it was, you might think about going on medication. A big decision, a big worry. 
what's going to happen to me if I go on medication? Am I going to lose functions? Am I going to lose my identity, my personality? Am I going to be able to cope with life any better? Am I just going to be walking around in a, like in a drunken stupor or something? But he very gently and carefully helped me consider the options until eventually I did go on to um, a reasonable dose of medication. Uh, and for, for some time, in hindsight, the medication did start to work. I didn't find, they, tell, they told me at the time it could take four weeks. I think in reality, it takes about three months. Probably shouldn't tell you that for anybody who's thinking of going on medication, but it's kind of uh, realistically speaking, you do get some benefits within four weeks, but within three or four months, I found I was starting to level out uh, quite a bit. And, uh, but then the question comes, so am I ready to come off the medication now? Is it all going to be okay? And so I would regularly think about that until I go back to the doctor. I'm thinking about taking it down and, okay, so let's look at the options here. The particular medication I take and I still take today is called paroxetine. And uh, it's particularly good at uh, dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, so when I tried to come off the medication, uh, the OCD kicked back in. I still, I'd, I'd say today, I'd still consider myself as someone who suffers with OCD, although I haven't had a bad episode for about 10 years now. But I, I'm like an alcoholic, you might say, who there's a temptation, there, there's a weakness there. So, I mean, just now I went to the toilet and I double checked the tap to make sure it's off, but I only look once. So the weakness is there. I just... Um, I'm able to somehow, and uh, apart from the spiritual kind of support I got from then on, which I'll tell you about in a minute, medication inevitably is the thing which keeps me going. Yeah. And um, so kind of through all that, through that journey, you then, um, you met Andrea and you got married and, and you had kids. Um, did, did that help? Was that, was that a positive thing? Did that kind of make the, uh, the OCD and anxiety decrease in any way? So no, to put it bluntly, to start off with, my wife is, of course, my angel of delight, but uh, to start off with the idea of making a decision to spend your life with somebody for the rest of their life isn't a helpful thing to do. But this is where I would say that God started to step in because uh, I would have some obsessive thoughts about a future with Andrew, even though there's nothing I wanted to do more than spend time with Andrew. I just wanted to be with her. And this idea of what is love, well, for me, love at that time was just wanting to be with somebody. I wanted to spend time with that person. And yet, my obsessiveness gave me all sorts of reasons about why it was a really bad idea to make a decision to spend the rest of your life with somebody. And so, no, it wasn't easy at all. And at one point, I was almost practically throwing up through out of anxiety and obsessiveness about this. But somehow, my fabulous wife, who bears bared with me and still bears with me today, stayed with me and bared with me. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it wasn't easy uh, to make that decision, but I suppose what Andrea did for me then and still does for me today and did through an experience, which hopefully I'll share with you in a minute, is she just speaks small elements of truth into my life. So when I'm, it could be as simple as looking at a tap or looking at a situation. We talked about something this morning and she will just bring some practical truth into a situation. Well, if that happens, Matt, we could do this. And if that's a problem, we could... And it's just when you... I suppose anxiety 
I mean, I'm no expert in anxiety, but OCD is a, is a classic example of panic. And I suppose I'm guessing that most anxiety has an element of panic about it. So when you're in a state of panic, you just need someone there sometimes just to say, okay, let's stop and think what is the, the truth about this situation. So yeah, that's kind of... And so that's a really good example of some helpful kind of advice and, and helpful thing to do. But through your experience and through taking medication, has there been any cases, maybe from Christians, of people giving unhelpful advice or kind of saying unhelpful things to you? Sure. So I'd say that uh, all the advice I've received from Christians, I'm sure, is completely heartfelt and from a heart of love. But uh, there, there is a... There is a sometimes uh, it's really really difficult to understand someone with a mental health problem, but in its essence, it's difficult. It's impossible to see what the problem is. I suppose for me, any advice which suggests that somehow you can read a Bible verse and everything will be fine. I mean, I do believe in the the Word of God being powerful, and there's certainly verses in the Bible which have spoken to me over the years. But you know, all things work for the good for those who know and love the Lord. It just doesn't. It just didn't work for me and uh, sometimes a little frustrating. But like I said, people did it from a good heart and they wanted to help. The best kind of support you, I found for me was just, as, as my wife does for me all the time, it's just to bear with me. She's willing to stand outside a public convenience while I'm in there for 20 minutes making sure the tap's turned out. She's just puts in little things and patiently tells me. And I have to say, Riverside is a, is a great place for that, people who are patient, and people say, well done, you're so brave for coming up here. And I obviously did this talk last week. Uh, it's not difficult, Riverside. Riverside, you're the most wonderful people. So thank you. And um, that's brilliant to hear. Yeah. Um, but so kind of as you've been sharing and saying all these things, there's probably some people here um, who uh, they see symptoms maybe in themselves or maybe they see it in someone they know, someone they love. Um, have you got any encouragement for, for those of us here who, who, who have people in our lives or maybe for ourselves sure. are th considering medication or thinking about, about these things? Sure. So I'd just like to share with you, if you don't mind, just some real incredible help that I did get spiritually. And it was during my last, uh, last time I, I fell back into OCD, which was when the last time I tried to decrease my medication 10 years ago. And um, I was uh, at, I was due to go on a holiday, surprise, surprise, with some people, a family, a couple who were marriages on the rocks. And we, we, me and Andrew with two kids were going on and I felt an incredible sense of responsibility to go on that holiday. And so of course I started getting really anxious about um, the holiday and could I go through with it, even though it was just a Ibiza, it was nothing. Um, but during that time I was in, uh, we were due to go to New Wine North in Newark and I was in a real bad way, probably worse than I'd ever been actually. Uh, and I was praising and crying at the same time. But at that time I received some really good Christian counseling. And I was told about somebody called Mark Stibby who'd written a book called From Orphans to Heirs. And the book, I've never read the book. I've got it if you want to borrow it, but I've never read it. Um, just told, just telling me his story was 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 really helpful, and he'd gone through this experience of being adopted, and he'd found out he's adopted. But through that experience of coming to terms with that, he got to understand what it meant for fa the father's love for a father to adopt. And I'm sure it's, it's the same for mothers, but just in this context, the father's love. 
And I've got the most wonderful parents in the world, as I've told you, a wonderful father in the world. But it was during that time that I really realized that our experience of fatherhood is nothing uh, compared to understanding the fatherhood of God and the love of God and a God who will spend a lot longer than 20 minutes outside a toilet waiting for you. He'll spend his whole life waiting for you. He will work, figuratively speaking, for months and months and months just to give you five seconds of happiness. He will want to spend time with you. He will stay up late with you. He will do anything to make you feel better. And it was that real, that acknowledgement and some support I've had ever since, which has helped me to come to terms with the fact that being on medication is just a small part of me. And, but I could only get to that point with that sense of love and acceptance from God. And please, when I say about bad advice, there's lots of wonderful advice that comes from the, the heart of the gospel. And for me, the best advice you can give to somebody is just to share God's love with them, that patient, that, um, that amazing love that God has, and that sometimes doesn't change things, but sometimes it does. And still today, Andrew will pray a five second prayer and five minutes later, I will feel better. Though a thought will come into my head, which will challenge the obsessive thoughts in ways that it didn't do before. And so please pray for people with anxiety. It does make a difference. Prayer makes a massive difference. For some reason, God decided not to answer those prayers when I, way back in the days of the skiing trip. But ever since he has, and he's, he answers prayers and he gives you thoughts. He gives you ways to keep going. I went on the trip to Ibiza, by the way, hallelujah, you know, and because of the prayers of Andrea, my friends, that kept me going. And sometimes it's just about keeping going. It's just about keeping going through the anxiety. And uh, yeah, I suppose when it comes to medication as well, the best way I, I I'd like to explain it is, I'm sure you've heard the old story about the, the guy who's in the house and the floods are rising and someone comes along with a boat and says, get in the boat, everything's going to be okay. He says, no, I prayed God's going to save me. And then he climbs up higher and the bigger boat comes, he's on the roof and God's going to save me. No, jump in the boat. No, God's going to save me. Then a helicopter comes down and the winch comes down. And he, the guy says, jump, jump, hold on. No, God's going to save me. And he gets to heaven and God says... He says to God, well, I thought you'd save me. And he said, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Why didn't you? Medication for me is that lifeboat. Why on earth would I not jump in that lifeboat? Is it pride? Is it fear? Uh, for me, it's often about what people think of me. Even though I'm in a wonderful church, I'll still be very embarrassed about some of the things I tell you. And, uh, but I've come to a place and I have a real acceptance of who I am that that anxiety is just a part of my life. I have this wonderful thing called medication. It is absolutely amazing that I can come up here, that I can play the drums, that I can be a good, better teacher, a better parent, a better father, uh, a better husband, hopefully, and uh, because of medication. And uh, there's not a single person in this room that won't have a problem. And for some people, it might be losing your temper. For some people, it might be a lack of patience about something. For me, it's anxiety. And it's not something that's good, but we all have it. And, uh, yeah. Thank you, Matt. And um, in, in, in preparing for today, you, you um, chose this verse um, from 1 John 3, verse 1, which says, 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And you have really beautifully spoken about this, and it, and it really applies to kind of your story. So um, thank you, Matt. And also, kind of you've said that you're happy with people afterwards coming up and speaking to you about this. If anyone has anything they want to discuss or, or ask you, you're happy with that, right? Absolutely. Um, I was just chatting to a friend afterwards uh, from the church, sorry, before the service, just chatting away. And I was, forgive me if I'm still talking, by the way. But... Um, I don't know if you've read What's So Amazing About Grace, and there's a story in there about below a church is a crypt and where they have an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and above is the church, and sometimes they happen at the same time. And Philip Yancey says, when people are honest below and says, hello, my name's, and I'm an alcoholic, he wishes the same honesty would happen in the church above. And I do hope that as a church, we can learn to be honest with each other. And we can't do it all the time. We'd be a nervous wreck if we kept spilling our hearts out to each other. I mean, I'm, I'm an extrovert. I love doing this stuff. But, uh, you know, I hope, oh, I do believe Riverside's the best place for this. And I do, again, thank you for all your support. And um, like Matt has been sharing with us, it's really clear that uh, as Christians, we don't have everything sorted. If that's what you thought at one point, if you thought Christians have everything, tick all our uh, ducks in a row, is that the phrase? Or is it eggs in a basket? Some of that. Christians don't have everything sorted. We are in desperate need of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. So, Matt, thank you. Can we give Matt a massive round of applause? <laughs> Matt, you have brilliantly um, modeled vulnerability um, for us and openness. So, thank you so much for that. Um, just going to wrap up here as we as we come to a close. Some of you, this might be your first time here this morning. Some of you might have been dragged here. You didn't really know what you were getting into. And some of you maybe have been coming for a while, but you've never quite grasped the, the surrounding grace, the loving grace of Jesus Christ. And, and actually something of what Matt has said this morning has, has sparked a question or you, you've got something you want to ask and more, more you want to discuss. Um, we welcome that. Please do come up and, and ask and talk to us. It was super clear from, from Matt's story that um, Jesus didn't remove the storms from his life, but Jesus was a constant presence throughout the storms.